turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes or open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're um, in the last section of this book, last section of that chapter, verses 12 through the end this morning, then Joe is correct. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. Um, one of the themes that you, you see in Ecclesiastes is that the, the preacher in the book is uh, getting himself frustrated uh, in his pursuit of wisdom and understanding, knowledge, pleasure, whatever it is. It uh, frequently is frustrating him. And um, trying to get into this text uh, this morning, I, you know, I titled it Upset Enough to Do Something. He's, he's clearly upset when you, you're reading this passage. Uh, but as you get to the end, you see, oh, now this is what he does with it. Um, and it's, it's, it's like the song we just sang. We, we do want to live for Jesus. And that's difficult at times uh, in the life that uh, is before us. I remember talking to a lady uh, that uh, discovered she had cancer and it was uh, advanced when they discovered it. So they had to remove part of her esophagus, part of her stomach, part of her intestines. Uh, that changed her lifestyle like that as soon as that surgery occurred. You know, she couldn't eat the things she ate before, drink the things she drank before. One thing she always wanted to do was quit smoking. Well, she had to then like that. Um, and it's like I always remember that. I said, well, you're upset now enough to do something. You've been talking about this thing you wanted to do all your life, and now you're going to do it. Um, God has brought this into your path, and it's creating a change. We all need times like that. Maybe this COVID pandemic is for us something God has brought into our path, and it's upsetting us enough that we're going to start doing things different. Um, if that's what's happening and you're doing it different or righteously, if you're doing it God's way, that's a good thing. Um, and that's kind of where the, the author of Ecclesiastes is this morning. He's frustrated as he looks in, at life uh, over three things. His accomplishments don't seem to be what they ought to be. His praise or uh, appreciation doesn't seem to be what it ought to be. And his labor just seems to produce anxiety. Um, and it's not uh, what it needs to be. So let's look at those three, and then the solution to those three uh, things that he comes up with. First of all, his accomplishments are disturbing him because they seem limited. Verses 12 through 17, hear God's word. I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, and the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as in the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man is with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten and how the wise man and the fool alike die so i hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind you can see some of his frustration there it just comes out in his words he begins with this threefold description i said i considered wisdom madness and folly in other words I tried to figure out how to be smart, to throw off ignorance, 
and how not to be foolish. Those are the three. I wanted to be smart, wisdom. I wanted to not be ignorant, madness. I wanted not to be foolish, folly. Um, and so as I pursued that, he says, I, I realize there's limitations. I pursued it to its end. He gives this description. Uh, who could go further than me? And basically his conclusion was nobody. I pursued being smart as far as you can go. I pursued ignorance, which is crazy, as far as you can go, and folly, which is crazy. And nobody can do that better than me. So we're limited. You can only be so smart. You can only be so mad, so ignorant, so foolish. It's not getting us the conclusions we want it to get us. Um, He says, now... Yeah, one's better than the other. He gets down to verse 13. He says, I saw that wisdom excels folly. We get that. He says, you can go either path, but they kind of end up the same place. He says, yeah, there's, there's some benefits of wisdom over folly, just like light over darkness, like the wise man's eyes uh, versus the foolish man's eyes. In other words, if you had to pick between 20-20 vision and being blind in the dark, you're going to pick 2020 vision. You know, it's just, there's an advantage to that wiser life. Yes, uh, he gets that. Uh, it's like, you're going to pick bread or rocks for dinner. You're going to pick bread. You know, there's advantage to, to knowing what's better and those kind of things. But the conclusion, uh, he says, verse 15, is the fate of the fool and the fate of the wise, we all die. And whatever we've accomplished doesn't seem to matter too much at that point. Uh, Does that disturb you? He says, it disturbs me. It bothers me that uh, you can be wise or you can be dumb and you both die. And there doesn't, the benefits of the wisdom doesn't seem, don't seem to show up at death. Um, It's like you've heard people say, you get in the rat race, and at the end of the day, you're just another rat. You know, we all die. So, you know, why are we doing this life the way we're doing it if it's so disturbing? Um, he talks about this limit uh, on, on remembrance, verse 16. There's no lasting re- remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Says, you know, you think, well, maybe the the benefit will be people will remember what I've done. They're not going to remember the foolish man, but they will remember the wise man. Well, that's not true. We will remember just as many foolish men, it seems, as we do wise men. I could ask you to give me a list of of bad characters. You said, you could start with Cain. Go way back. Cain did what? He killed Abel. We still remember that story. Um, You could pick lots of them in, in the in the Bible, how about Judas Iscariot? Everybody knows who he is. He's a bad dude. Uh, so it doesn't matter whether you were the good dude or the bad dude. You remember the bad ones. We remember Hitler, Hitler Stalin, Saddam Hussein. I mean, there's lots of bad folks that we remember just as much as good folks. He said, that's disturbing. There's no lasting remembrance because of us being wiser as opposed to being foolish. Uh, And then he ends that section with strong language, verse 17. So I hated life. I mean, that's 
That's strong. Uh, whenever you hear someone that frustrated, it's like, I hate my life. I just hate it. And yet we've all been there at times. Uh, God's word's so honest about it. This is difficult. And he just leaves us at this point being disturbed. He says it's, it's, it's futile. It's striving after wind. I can't hold the wind. I can't hold my life. It just seems vain. What do I do? And he just leaves us there for a while, disturbed. And then he brings up a whole other section about, well, maybe appreciation for what we accomplish is, is what gives us a satisfying life. Verse 18 uh, to 21. Let me read it. It says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. So, the, you know, what does it produce? I just kind of hate that, that it's not enough. For which I labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. You know, it, it's kind of the thought, well, maybe if I work real hard and I give it to somebody who will work real hard and appreciate it, then it has some value. He says, but I don't really know if the person who gets what I work for will really appreciate it and will really value it. Um, you know, suppose you go and you, you see this beautiful antique piece of furniture and you're a restorer, you like that kind of thing, and you spend all kinds of hours and monies restoring this beautiful antique. You, you pour your life into it. You die and you put it in your will, I want to give this to my son or daughter or whoever, somebody. And so they show up to get this beautiful antique that you poured your life into, and they look at it and they say, I have a modern house, modern furniture. That doesn't go with anything I've got. Just sell it at the yard sale. And so it sells for two bucks. That's the futility he's, he's wrestling with. Why did I spend so much time and money and pour my life into that? And somebody gets it that loves me, and yet they really don't appreciate it. And it just goes. When I realized that, I gave up hope that anybody would ever want my LPs. Y'all know what LPs are, right? Long playing, 33 and a third revolutions per minute micro-grooved vinyl records. I mean, I, I sold them. They're gone. No, I didn't sell them. I just gave them away. And nobody wanted them. You know, uh, we have things at times, and that's the futility. We think they're valuable when we got them. He says, that just doesn't seem to last. All right, so where was I? But end of verse 19, it's vanity. Verse 20, therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there's a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great eagle, a uh, great evil. Oh, it's, just, it's, it's like the things we work for, they, at some point they just get thrown out with the trash. No real appreciation of the value. 
Then he goes to uh, verse 22 and 23, and I just call this anxiety, laborious anxiety. Verse 22, what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving? So it's laborious labor. Striving with which he labors under the sun because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. So he says, where does our labor lead us? We just, we work, we work, we work, we go to bed, we think about what we need to work on tomorrow, and we work and work, and we go to bed, and we think about it again, and we get anxious about it, and it just seems to be anxiety after anxiety, no rest. Where is that taking us? Uh, What are the satisfying solutions? Verses 24 to the end is where he begins to consider how to arrive at where God's leading him. Where are these frustrations of life taking us? What's the path forward from God's standpoint? First thing I want you to see, first principle, is to realize that these agonizing limitations God has for us in life are God's gifts to us. God's gifts. God has gifted you with limitations. We often want to just think what God's given me for advantages and not seeing that the limitations themselves can be an advantage that God's restrictions are good for us. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor's good. This also I've seen that it is, here's key phrase, from the hand of God. It's God's gift. God has gifted you with a certain labor that's limited. We've already talked about it. It's limited in this life. It's limited in who you give it to. It's limited in what you get out of it. It's limited in how much of it you can do. Um, It's limited in many ways. And he says, it's nothing better for you to just say, but it's good. And, And God has given it to me. Uh, I love the um, motto of A.L. Williams. Any of you who've sold insurance or financial planning with him uh, understand this. But his motto was, all you can do is all you can do. And all you can do is enough. And when I read that for the first time, I said, that's something to remember. That's, that's a principle. I think it's coming right out of verse 24 here. All you can do is all you can do. It's God's limits you to you. You can't do it all. Nobody can do more than Solomon already did, he said. You can't come after him and do more. You're limited in how God has gifted you, what time frame he's put you in, where he's planted you on earth. You're limited so many ways. All you can do is all you can do. And then to get the next step and realize all you can do is enough. That God designed you for just that amount. So that you sit down at the end of the day and say, it was good. You know, the word good there is the same uh, word that's found in Genesis 1. What did God do? He created all things. And after he created all things, what did he do? He sat down and he said, this is good. What God created, this is good. You don't have to read far, the first page of the Bible, to to begin to 
emulate God. God takes time at the end of his labor. He sits down. He drinks a glass of wine and says, this is good. Now, I don't know about the wine part. I just threw that in. But it's, it's that kind of mentality. And even wine, Psalm 104, says God's gift for gladness. Just to sit down and say, Lord, what I was able to do today, that was enough. Yeah, I'm still anxious. I'm still frustrated. I wish I could do more. I hate it that I couldn't do more. But then we can start kind of getting some peace over that if we quit going that route. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, and start saying, no, it was good. That was what you created me. That was all I could do. That was all I have the ability and the time and the resources to do. And since that was all I could do, and you gave it to me, it came right out of your hand. Let me be content with that much. Contentment with that much because God gave it. You know, it's so easy for us to burn out. And we burn out because we're trying to go further down the path than God allows us to go. We have limitations. And we work so hard that we hate the life we have. When we would not hate it if we stopped every day to consider the goodness of the hand of God for what we were able to accomplish. Consider the good. Acknowledge it. Um, and then social media is working against you. Because we sit down at the end of the day. We got a few minutes before bed. What do we do? We pull out the iPad and the phone and the computer and start scrolling. And what are we looking at? We're looking at what everybody else did. And then we start comparing ourselves to them, and we hate it again. And if we could put all of that down and just think about what God allowed us to do, we could say, yeah, that's enough. That's who he made me to be. That's what he allowed me to do. I couldn't have done it anymore. And if I couldn't have done anymore because I wasn't created with the wisdom, the ability, the time, the place to do anymore, then that must be sufficient. That must be good enough. That must be consistent with God's design. Look at Mark chapter 6. I love this example that Jesus gave to his disciples. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. One of the times where Jesus tells his disciples to quit ministering. Ignore the people. Mark 6, beginning at verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that he had done and taught, and he, that they had done and taught, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there, and here's the explanation in parentheses, the reason he said that was because there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. You ever have a day where you feel like, I can't get it done, I can't get it done, I, I don't have time to eat, I don't have time to do one more thing. And do you need to hear Jesus say, won't you stop right where you are? Come away with me. 
Let's just sit down and talk. Let's consider what we have done and see that that's enough. See that that's good. Am I the only one that needs to hear that? Man, I, I want more of that in my life. More of that time to just sit and thank God for what he is doing and has done in the life that he's given me. That's his first principle, that understand that every day, every limitation is God's gifts. Um, second, he moves on to what I call God-gazing, verse 25 of Ecclesiastes 2. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Important principle. Who can eat? Who can have enjoyment without him? Him. Now, you may have a strange translation there, the, the personal pronoun. In several different Hebrew manuscripts are different, and so you've got to pick. Whenever we have that problem as a translator, if you've got two different, man, what you think original manuscripts, you've gone back as far as you can go, and you've got two manuscripts and they disagree, it's like, okay, I've got to pick one. So which one's most consistent with the context? So you may have, uh, have it read in your Bible, who can eat and um, who can have enjoyment without me? Or King James, without I. Uh, if you've got that, that was one of the manuscript options. You should have a note in your Bible that says there's the alternative, and that's without him. I prefer the translation without him uh, because just, I mean, just a few words uh, before that in verse 24 the subject was the hand of God. God was the subject. I don't think he switched subjects. He hasn't uh, indicated that he switched subjects. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? So the, the him being God there. That he's not going back to tell us his frustrations with him, uh, meaning Solomon, or me, me and I, meaning Solomon. But he's talking about God. So I, that's the way I'm translating it. That's my story. I'm sticking to that one, okay? Uh, when you look at it that way, verse 25, who can eat and who can drink, uh, who can enjoy life without God? Then you see Solomon doing the same thing we were just talking about. It's like I stop at the end of the day and I say, you know, I couldn't have done any of this without God. Not only was I limited, but I was aided in everything I did. I couldn't have eaten, I couldn't have drunk, and I couldn't have done any of the work that, have got, that would have gotten my food or gotten my drink without God. God is the one helping me. Um, God remains our focus and should remain our focus. You can look at death, you can look at um, what happens when we die, you can look at appreciation, all the things he talked about earlier. Um, it doesn't matter unless God's in the picture. And that's what he's saying. Let's just look at God for a minute. Are you a, a God-gazer? You know, I, I, uh, I tried that this morning. I came in here, usually come in here around 8 o'clock and do a mic check so that we know it's on and it's working. And it's interesting. Sometimes it works at 8 o'clock and doesn't work at 9.30. But anyway... Uh, we were doing that this morning, so when I stepped up these steps here, 
there were two or three people behind me. Instead of asking, which is what we normally do, uh, what's up? What's going on? How was your week? You know, normal questions. How you doing? I stepped up on stage and said, what have you seen God doing this week? See, it changes the focus. What have you seen God doing? And I immediately got great answers that I didn't dream of. One person behind me said, God gave me a new job this week. Well, I wouldn't have gotten that, probably. Or God met, allowed me, whatever you said, my heart to beat 300 and, tell me what was the number again? 3,600 times an hour. Yeah, he felt that this week from God. Uh, what have you seen God do this week? I asked my wife this week, trying to train myself to ask better questions. What have you seen God do this week? She mentioned a bush that she had seen blooming. God did that. I remember this week looking and seeing God light up the night sky with just splendors, crescent moon and stars, and led me to worship. I heard from one of my daughters that God was allowing her to feel a baby kick in her womb. Wow. What have you seen God do this week? What can you eat or drink without Him? Are you taking the time to gaze at what He's doing? He provides your food. He provides your drink. He provides all that's going on. Life doesn't seem so worthless and vain when you're a God-gazer. When you're waking up to see God in all of His glory uh, before you. That's, that's what I encourage you. You know this famous passage on contentment. Look at it again with me. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, where Paul talks about his contentment. Let's just gaze into this passage a little bit from that perspective of being a God-gazer. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Paul says, Not that I speak from want, or that I need something. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. It's like, wow, how, how did you learn that, Paul? I'd, I'd love to have that. And now look at his explanation. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In other words, I know how to be a poor man. I know how to be a rich man. I can do them both good. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled, going hungry. So he can do the Thanksgiving meal. He could have a whole week without a meal. He said, I'm good with both. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the key part. He's gazing at how God is in him and strengthening him and is flowing through him. You could ask Paul, what are you seeing God do today? What are you seeing God do this week? He's in me, strengthening me to, to deal with poverty. He's strengthening me to deal with not having enough. Sometimes he strengthened Paul with having too much. He says, I'm rich. I, I'm meeting with kings and they give me palaces. I can live in the palace. I can live in the depths of the sea. When I'm kicked overboard. Paul says. 
It doesn't matter the circumstances if you're gazing at what God is strengthening you to do. If you're looking at God. Key principle for getting out of this uh, anxiousness and this rat race we're in uh, to realize there's really no joy without God. So why don't we start looking at God instead of looking at the circumstances for joy? Look at God for our joy, our contentment. Then we can face problems. We can face death. Paul in Philippians 1 verse 6 says, says, I'm confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in me will complete it, will fulfill it till the day of my death. He says, I can gaze at God and I'll never stop. Because he is at work in me and will complete that work in me. Want real luxury? Want real joy? Practice being a God-gazer, looking to see God in all that we do. And then the third thing, this abundant living is God's gift. Verse 26, for to a person who is good in his sight, he has given, notice the emphasis, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. When he uses the word sinner, he's not saying that some are not sinners. He's obviously using it in a relative sense that uh, we're all sinners. Some of us have faith in God. We turn to God. We trust in God. So he's comparing that person to the person who doesn't turn to God. And he says to the person who does turn to God, he says, realize that God has given you wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Now, those are things we think we earn, don't we? I went to school to get smart. I had to pay a lot of money to get smart. I had to work hard, you know, to, to gain this experience, to gain this knowledge, to gain this understanding. You say, I have a lot of joy, a lot of things. I worked hard for this. We, we're constantly seeing we earned wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And yet this text says, no, you didn't. God gave it to you. Now, if we could see the difference, we would have more of it. Want, wisdom, want true wisdom, want true knowledge, you want true joy, then go to the hand that gives it instead of to the lifestyle that earns it. We frequently are, are seeking to be earners of what God graciously gives. doesn't mean we're lazy at all. It just means we need to be at the source of these things. Um, and when we are at the source of things, we don't have to worry anymore. Some of you in school, you worry, can I make the grade? Can I pass the test? Can I finish the exam before Thanksgiving, before Christmas, whatever? And it's, it's worry to earn certain grades and certain abilities. And saying, God, instead of saying, God, I'm going to do what you uh, allow me to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to appreciate the gift of wisdom, of knowledge, of joy. You look to God to be the giver instead of to yourself to be the earner. Um, it takes away so much worry in life. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 6. I'm liking this passage more and more. I just thought of it. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 6, a description of God, a description of us somewhat. 
It says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe, must have faith. And he, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Just look at that passage. Fall in love with God. God says, you want to be more in my life? You want more of me? The person who comes to God says, first of all, he must have faith. You come to God through faith in Christ. Through believing, he is. He exists. You don't come to God unless you believe he is. He exists. He is who he says he is. He's creator. He's redeemer. He so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. You believe facts about the real, true, biblical God. He who comes to God believes he is, first. And then second, believes he gives gifts. He rewards. He's a giver, our God. When you realize he's a giver, that then life's not about us earning, meriting grace. It's just about us receiving grace. To as many as receive him, them he gives the right to be, the power and the authority to be children of God and to experience all the blessings of our Father forevermore. Uh, abundant living's a gift. If you've got it, enjoy God. Enjoy the blessings that God has given you. Does your life trouble you? Kind of sum it up? Because your accomplishments seem limited? People don't appreciate you? Their appreciation seems lame? And your work just fills you with anxiety, worry, more trouble. Sometimes you just hate it. What are the conclusions? See God. Love God. Enjoy God. It starts making sense. Let's pray together. Father, the solutions seem so simple when we sum it up like that. That we could discount it. We could lay it aside like a book on a shelf. And not put any work or labor or effort into seeing God. And loving God. And enjoying God. Father forbid it. Move us. May we be so disturbed by our lives that we do something. That we make a better effort of seeing God. Day to day. Moment to moment. That we... Work hard at just loving you and enjoying you. Father, for those in this room who haven't gotten there yet, Lord, grant the gift of faith that they may believe you are who you say you are. Draw them to yourself that they may have the wonderful life that we have, the, the, the way out of this vainness, this emptiness. Father, grant it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.